Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Thursday, March the 24th. In a few minutes' time, we're going to hear an update about the CRASH-2 trial. This concerns the use of tranexamic acid in trauma patients. This follows up the Lancet's publication of the main CRASH-2 trial in June last year. But just before that, let's hear the latest about the health situation in Japan following all the devastating events there. Justin McCurry has written a World Report item, which was published online on Tuesday, March the 22nd, and it's in the current issue as well. Justin McCurry on the line from Tokyo. Many thanks indeed for talking to us. Obviously, we want people to read the World Report. So just to give some highlights here, can you first of all comment about the healthcare infrastructure? What state is it in in northeast Japan? The health infrastructure in that particular part of Japan um, was you know, among the many victims of the, not just of the earthquake, which alone seems to have done relatively little damage, but the tsunami that followed that sort of swallowed up everything in its way, built, uh, houses, office buildings, and of course, hospitals and other healthcare facilities. So the health infrastructure in those three hardest hit prefectures of Iwate, Fukushima, and Miyagi um, have sustained uh, incredible damage. Um, it's going to take years, some of the local officials are saying, for the uh, health and other parts of the regional infrastructure to, to uh, get back to normal. But there are signs that um, doctors and other health and health officials in the region have been able to salvage something. There are uh, some hospitals are either fully or, or partially functional. Um, I've been speaking to doctors who um, in, in some areas say that they have enough of the essential drugs and other and equipment they need to keep things ticking over for the time being while they wait for more supplies to arrive from other parts of Japan and indeed from overseas. Uh, but there are other places where healthcare provision has basically fallen to zero in some sort of uh, isolated communities um, that have borne the brunt of the tsunami. That's partly because of damage to the uh, to hospitals and other healthcare centres, but also because, of course, healthcare professionals have been among the victims. They've either uh, been killed in the disaster, or if they live next to the, uh, close to the Fukushima nuclear power plant, they've had to be evacuated to shelters in other parts of Japan, uh, or they lost their homes and indeed members of their families and friends uh, in the tsunami and have had to move to eva uh, evacuation centers for that reason as well. So, you know, they they're confronting myriad problems on the healthcare front, um, but, you know, there are signs now 13, 14 days after the disaster uh, that attempts are being made at least to provide essential care for people who are at greatest risk. One point you make, which is interesting in the piece, concerns actually chronic diseases among elderly people. Japan has a pretty aging population, doesn't it? So there's a juxtaposition, I assume, between the, the threat of communicable diseases because of the sanitation and water problems there, but also chronic diseases faced by elderly people. That's right. Japan does have a very big elderly population, and the, pop the elderly population in that particular part of Japan, which re relies on you know, it's fairly rural. There are big cities there, but the two main industries are farming and fishing, and the average age of those uh, villages and towns along the coast is is higher than you would find in places like Tokyo and other big cities. I think one of the defining characteristics of this disaster is going to be the advanced age, average age of, of the victims and the evacuees. The doctors on the ground uh, in northeast Japan say that they do face a humanitarian crisis really because of the number of elderly people many of whom were already ill or disabled before the tsunami struck and now are being denied access to 
in some cases, basic drugs, uh, drugs to treat high blood pressure, that kind of thing, but also because uh, they're immobile. Many of them are immobile. So we now have this quite tragic situation in which uh, doctors are having to tour um, not just hospitals, but uh, cafeterias, uh, business hotels and, and other buildings, at least the ones that are left standing, to, to treat elderly patients who just are unable to move at the moment. And, of course, add, add, you know, add the factor into that, the fact that many of these patients do suffer serious chronic illnesses, and it all amounts to, um, you know, I think crisis is, certainly isn't too strong a word for it. Also, Justin, can you tell us um, a, a bit about the follow-up from Fukushima and the concerns about contamination of water and foodstuffs? That's getting quite a bit of coverage here in the UK. What is the situation among the Japanese population. Yeah, this is the, the situation surrounding the Fukushima nuclear plants changing by the day. I mean, initially there were concerns when, you know, several of the reactors at the plant um, exploded, or at least the uh, buildings housing them exploded because of the release of hydrogen into the atmosphere, that the threat to the surrounding communities and even to cities as far away as Tokyo, which is 150 miles to the south, would be from radioactive material uh, being released in, into the atmosphere. That shifted slightly because there's, there's firm evidence now that radioactivity, um, particularly radioactive iodine, has found its way into the food and water supply. So there have been bans imposed in the last couple of days on certain fruits and vegetables and milk produced in the Fukushima area and surrounding prefectures, but also on uh, today, Wednesday, March the 23rd, this very worrying development with uh, the discovery of levels of radioactive iodine in the water supply, the tap water supply in Tokyo, which is, um, and the level is just just over double the legal limit considered safe for infants. So the advice from the authorities in Tokyo is not to allow infants and babies to drink tap water for the time being. That's obviously triggered a spree of panic buying of bottled water in the capital and indeed in other parts of Japan because people fear in the absence of much information that the problem could spread to an even wider geographical area. For the moment, the, the attention of the authorities and I think of the people of Japan has shifted now from atmospheric contamination to contamination of the food and water supply. And finally, Justin, going back to the, the focus of the worst affected areas in the northeast of the country, the evacuation centres that are obviously so important, providing shelter for people directly affected by the devastation there. What is the situation like in those evacuation centres and, and what are the specific health issues and health care challenges being being posed in those centres? Well, it varies. There are about 2,500 evacuation centres housing um, an estimated 350 thousand people and the health situation varies depending on the location of those evacuation centers some of them are now beginning to get supplies of blankets food uh, fresh water and heating fuel and the, the cold the unseasonably cold weather um, has really complicated matters for people working for aid workers and health professionals working on the ground because people are complaining of, of common colds but also influenza there have been reports of quite large outbreaks of, of diarrhea and other illnesses associated with lack of hygiene so that's obviously a, a concern but in some of the shelters that are located next to some of these towns that have simply been swallowed up by the tsunami the situation is 
according to uh, people on the ground, even worse than that. There's a problem with hygiene, with a lack of water, but also, as I mentioned earlier, a lack of um, basic medicines and, and medical equipment to, to, to treat, as we've discussed, the very large elderly population in these evacuation centres. So the situation there, generally speaking, remains grim, um, but there are signs that progress is being made by Japanese troops, by overseas aid workers, and by the U.S. Navy in getting some of these essential supplies to the, through to the people who need them most. But there's a long way to go. I think the health consequences of what happened on the 11th of March uh, are beginning to become clear, but uh, it's going to be quite some time before we see the, the, the full extent of the health emergency that this tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear crisis have caused in Japan. We're bound to return to this devastating health issue. But in the meantime, Justin McCurry, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. Now, also this week, we publish an update on the CRASH-2 trial. The main trial was published in June last year. So for an update, let's speak to the coordinator of the trial, Professor Ian Roberts from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. For listeners who may not be familiar with what happened last year, can you just give a brief synopsis, if you would, of the main findings from the first CRASH-2 study last year? Yeah, the, the CRASH-2 trial was a randomized controlled trial of tranexamic acid in bleeding trauma patients. 20,211 patients were randomly allocated to get tranexamic acid or placebo, and the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. And what we found was that there was a highly statistically significant reduction in all-cause mortality at the end of the study period in patients who received tranexamic acid. So it was a really tremendously, um, it was really good news. And as a result of the CRASH-2 trial, tranexamic acid is being incorporated into trauma protocols all around the world. And the main, if you like, story, wasn't it, last year, June 2010, was that trauma patients, bleeding trauma patients treated within eight hours overall collectively had a 10% mortality reduction. Tell us about how you've run the follow-up study and its key findings. Most of the effect of tranexamic acid on all-cause mortality was from death due to bleeding. That's what you would expect given the hypothesized mechanism of action of tranexamic acid. So tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic agent and it reduces clot breakdown. It supports the coagulation system by strengthening the the clots that the patient's forming. Because of its mechanism, most of the effect you'd expect on death due to bleeding. And so it became reasonable to see how did the effect of tranexamic acid on death due to bleeding, which is the clear signal of benefit, how did that vary by time to treatment? And we found remarkably strong evidence that the effect of the treatment varied by time to treatment, such that early treatment was far and away more effective than late treatment. The importance of this second publication is to emphasize that early treatment is absolutely critical. Ideally, treatment in the first hour, which uh, patients who are treated in the first hour, there's a th more than a 30% reduction in mortality due to bleeding compared to placebo. It's a time-dependent treatment effect, and that's the main conclusion of this second paper. Indeed, and it's very much a, a parallel, isn't it, to the urgent treatment of uh, stroke patients with alteplase within a, a limited time window, which 
uh, obviously has been documented quite widely as well. One thing I'm particularly interested in, you suggest in this new follow-up data that treatment beyond three hours could be ineffective or even possibly harmful. Can you elaborate on that? Well, there's two things going on in this data. There's first, there's, very, there's, there's the evidence that the treatment effect varies by time. Now, that's overwhelmingly strong. That's, there's really quite massive um, heterogeneity, and it's highly statistically significant. So we know that the, the effect of tranexamic acid on death due to bleeding varies with time. We are less certain about whether tranexamic acid, given very late, can increase the risk of um, death due to bleeding. But to some extent, that's not important because what people will do is not give it after about three or four hours. These data suggest that it should be given early, should be given as soon as possible, but after about three or four hours, it's unlikely to be effective. Now, it might be harmful, but clinically, it doesn't make any difference. If You know, we don't give the treatment because we don't think it's going to be beneficial. So we don't need to worry about harm. But one interesting implication from, from these new findings about the importance of the early treatment window is how and when tranexamic acid is going to be delivered. Because if a year ago we thought within eight hours was a reasonable catch or you know relevant time frame, but now we're saying within three hours, there's an implication, isn't it, that um, quite often people will need to be given tranexamic acid outside the hospital setting. So is that going to alter trauma protocols, do you think? I think it will. The knowledge that this is a time-critical intervention will actually push the administration of tranexamic acid as early as possible. In countries where they've got well-developed pre-hospital care systems, then it, it, I think it's likely to appear in that setting. Patients will be picked up from the scene and maybe you know, tr- treated with tranexamic acid in the ambulance or as soon as they arrive in hospital. Patients who take many hours to arrive at hospital these data suggest it's less likely to be effective and it probably won't be given. Indeed, and can you just remind us, because I think it's very easy to read a study in The Lancet and just assume that the methodology is, you know, is straightforward and it's all done and it's all laid out neatly in the article. But actually, doing this type of trial in a trauma setting must be incredibly complicated. Can you just tell us a little bit about the background to the difficulty of actually doing a study like the CRASH trial? I mean, its real strength is that it's an international collaboration of doctors all around the world. The remarkable thing is, is that that you can build such collaborations. I, I, I always have to pinch myself. Doctors in especially low and middle income countries are now seeing a major um, tidal wave of trauma. And it, they're really, you know, it's really quite extraordinarily the with the increase in motorization around the world it's 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 like a war zone in many hospitals on a, on a friday and saturday night so they get a lot of trauma and there's a strong desire to find safe and effective treatments in a way it's less difficult than you might imagine and what you've got to do is just take the first step invite people to collaborate but what we find is there's an overwhelming desire to do that the hard things are ethics and clinical trial regulations, which seem to be making it harder and harder to do clinical trials, especially in the emergency setting. Quite often, they ask for things that we think don't really make sense. So, for example, in some countries, patients who come in with significant hemorrhage, the doctor, before they can recruit the patient into the trial, has to find a relative 
to give permission for the patient to be included in the trial. Now, this is a, a potentially, well, this is a life-saving treatment in an emergency situation where someone's potentially bleeding to death. It seems strange to me that uh, someone would, should have to wait for either some designated representative in the hospital or a relative to give permission. Putting these two things together, if you imagine that some of the patients in the, in the CRASH-2 trial were treated later than they would need to be in clinical practice as a result of that requirement for somebody to give a signature, then the results that we've got from the trial are an underestimate of its likely effect in clinical practice. Sorry, so, just to interrupt you there, that's fascinating. So, so you're actually saying that, that, that some, in some settings, individuals were treated later because of the paperwork required or the ethics oh, yeah. approval required. So actually, their clinical management and therefore their outcome was at risk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's absolutely, it follows completely from, you know, we've got a time-critical intervention and we've got some situations where either the, re the, the clinical trials regulations or the ethics committee imposed a delay in treatment whilst some, I think, bureaucratic process takes place. So, you know, the result we found in the trial, in clinical practice, it would be even better than that. And it's overwhelmingly good in the trial. I think there's two stories. There's one story for clinical practice and one a story for research regulation. I think we've got clear evidence that research regulation can kill. What next for the CRASH-2 trial and, and what next for trauma guidelines? The reason we did the CRASH-2 trial is that there was clear evidence that tranexamic acid reduces hemorrhage in surgical patients. We said, well, maybe it'll stop patients bleeding to death in trauma, and it has. We've initiated another trial called the WOMAN trial, which is a trial of tranexamic acid in postpartum hemorrhage. And we're also initiating a trial of tranexamic acid in traumatic intracranial hemorrhage, and that'll be called the CRASH-3 trial. Professor Ian Roberts, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, many thanks to Ian Roberts and Justin McCurry, and to you all for listening. See you next time.